0: We'll be in Exodus 12 through 17 this morning. Obviously, we can't read all of that scripture. The scripture I'll be referencing will be on the screen, but if you want to follow along in your Bible, you're welcome to turn to Exodus 12 and try to keep up that way. Yeah, we'll be moving at a pretty fast clip. Last week... Nathan took us through the ten plagues as God prepared to move his chosen people, the nation Israel, out of Egypt into the promised land, the land that he had promised Abraham, the land that Israel inhabits even today as we speak. Not all of the land, but a small portion of it. And Nathan ended the sermon last week pointing out that that Passover lamb was a symbol that points us to Christ. And then we took the Lord's Supper together. Jesus Christ, our new Passover lamb. And we move into a section of Scripture now where there's so much obvious symbolism or what theologians would call uh, typology. Typology. These Actual events or actual things in the Old Testament Scripture that point us to either Christ or spiritual truth. And we have to be careful here, so let me say at the outset, you have to be very careful not to allegorize your Bible. Do not allegorize your Bible. Don't look at these things that happened in history and say, well, maybe it didn't really happen, that's just a story that that God is using to point us to spiritual truth. God actually created the heavens and earth out of nothing. God actually created Adam and Eve. They're actual people. There was an actual fall in Genesis 3. Amen. Amen. But we know as God reveals more and more truth to us as His story unfolds, we start to understand that there was deeper spiritual meaning behind a lot of these events. So when you read your Bibles, first and foremost, start with who are these people, what happened then in history, and why did it happen, and what did it mean for them. And then the prophets or the New Testament authors might take that event and pull out for us Deeper spiritual truths or other layers of spiritual truth. But what you should always do as you're reading your Bible is say, what transcendent truth is God teaching to these people at this time in history and carry that transcendent principle? By transcendent we mean it it goes above time and culture and it's true for us as well. It's true for us. Just in a different context. But people haven't changed. We're going to see Israel complaining and grumbling in the desert. And last time I checked the mirror, there was a complainer and grumbler staring me in the face. And God did this great miracle of saving them out of Egypt into a new land flowing with milk and honey. And God has saved me out of slavery to sin and into righteousness and eternal life. And I often find myself saying, well, at least back in Egypt, at least back in Egypt, you know, it was comfortable. And you can convince yourself that it was a better life before your salvation. So, those are the kinds of things that we're going to look at this morning. And this particular chunk of scripture coming up is so packed with symbols of Christ. The strategy was either pick one and really go into it deeply, or hit them all more on the surface level and let you dig in more deeply this week. So, I'm going to opt for the latter. We're going to look at 10 signs from the Exodus that point us. To Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said on the road to Emmaus? All of the law and the prophets point to me. That doesn't mean read your Bible and pick up every rock in the Old Testament and look under it for Jesus Christ. Oh, look at that leaf. That was probably Jesus. Look at that. Now you're allegorizing your Bible. But where the Old Testament is clearly um, this actual event that happened in history for a purpose had a, another purpose, which was to teach us spiritual truth once Jesus came. And so that's what we'll see this morning. So we have to do those two things. We have to see what the actual event was and what it meant for the Israelites, and then what it's teaching us about Christ. Right? So let's start with the first sign, the Passover lamb. It's where we left off last week, and it's such an obvious sign of Jesus. Right? You get this. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Lamb, spotless, without blemish. There is no sin in Him. He's fully divine, and yet He's fully human, so He can take our place on the cross. For the wages of sin is death. God told Adam and Eve, on the day that you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. And they began to die physically that day, But immediately they died spiritually and were separated from God because of their sin. And so this Passover lamb points us to the Lamb of God who would come. And God says, For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And Nathan beautifully and rightly told us the whole point of the Exodus was to establish God's lordship. Every one of the ten plagues corresponded to a false god of Egypt. And God was demonstrating his power and authority over these false gods through the ten plagues. People were told to take the Passover lamb, bring it into your house, and the lamb was to live in the house for a while so the family could get accustomed to the lamb. It almost became the family pet, this beautiful little, little lamb. We're, uh, we're neighbors with, with the Berrymans, and they take their sheep for a walk at night when we're walking our dog. It's, it's, it's the family pet. They're in 4-H, and I doubt they're going to be having lamb chops. They may later. I don't know but they're taking their lamb for a walk and they love their, their, this sheep and it's really neat to see them out. And you could imagine having this beautiful little ewe lamb in your house and then one night, Dad's saying, gather round, children. Mm. I know if you're an animal lover like me, you're like getting teared up just thinking about it. Well, why? Why would we have to do that, Dad? What did the lamb ever do then? There's the lesson this innocent, beautiful little lamb. And so graphic, the the blood on the white lamb and collecting the blood and taking the hyssop branch and putting it over. Why would we have to do such a thing? It seems so wasteful and so, so hurtful and so ugly. Yes, sin is ugly. Sin is ugly. The wages of sin is death. But we trust God. And by faith, we're going to to put the blood on the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over our house. And beloved, if you are in Christ and put your faith in the Passover lamb, Christ, then the blood of Christ covers you. And on that day when you have to stand before your judge, the angel of death, so to speak, will pass over you only if the blood of the lamb is covering your sins. You see that rich symbolism. The hyssop branch is the same branch that later God would order the high priest to take and dip in the blood and sprinkle on the mercy seat. And it was a branch of hyssop when Jesus was on the cross and said, I thirst that they offered him vinegar. And so this very poignant moment in Israel's past becomes a poignant moment for us as New Testament saints. We gather around the Lord's Supper table as we did last week to remember the spotless Lamb of God sacrificed on our behalf and that His blood covers us. Even more interesting here. It goes on to say, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigners to eat of it. It is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. And we read in the New Testament that just before sundown, Jesus' followers went to Pilate and said, Can we break the legs because in the Mosaic law to be hanging from a tree after sundown was an abomination. And so they would mercifully say, go ahead and break the bones of the leg. The whole point of crucifixion was to die slowly of asphyxiation. And with that nail driven through your feet to push up on your feet to get a breath the pain shooting through your body was just unbearable and yet your body's starving for oxygen and telling you take that next breath and you're dreading pushing up on your feet so they would break the legs out of mercy so you couldn't push up anymore and you would die of asphyxiation when they went to break Jesus's legs he was already dead and the new testament says so that the prophecy would be fulfilled, nor are you to break any bone of it. The second sign is the sign of circumcision. God says, no uncircumcised person may eat of it. Circumcision was the sign of covenant with God, instituted with Abraham when God made covenant with Abraham. And so, none of those outside the covenant with God were allowed to eat from the Passover. If a foreigner came to your house, they weren't allowed to eat unless they became God-fearers and submitted themselves to physical circumcision, then they could partake of the Passover lamb. So, circumcision was a sign of the old covenant But God says in the pages of Scripture, especially from the Old Testament prophets, that a time is coming when God would circumcise our hearts. Circumcise our hearts. Physical circumcision is an outward sign of a covenant, which should be an inward reality that I've made a covenant with, with God in my heart. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. So the problem was, many people were circumcised, but they really had no relationship with God. It was just outward legalism. So God says, I will have to circumcise their hearts. Paul writes in Colossians 2.11, "...and in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ." Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Our outward sign of our covenant with God is when we publicly get baptized. The baptism doesn't save you any more than the circumcision saved you. It's an outward sign of an inward reality. How do you demonstrate to people that God has circumcised your heart through outward obedience? 1 Corinthians 10.16 Is not the cup of blessing which we bless, a sharing in the blood of Christ, is not the bread which we break, a sharing in the body of Christ. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. When we gather around the Lord's table... We gather as believers in the same gospel. That's what unites us when we take Lord's Supper. Not family, not tradition, not I was born in this church and raised in this church and this is what we do together. This is, we say, if your children have professed faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and you see fruits of repentance and they've been baptized and they understand the meaning, then they're invited to partake With us. And we let people know that you need to believe this in order to take communion or Lord's Supper with us this morning. And so, in the same way for the Old Testament saints, that the sign of circumcision was necessary in order to take the Passover lamb, that just points us to a greater spiritual reality in the future that faith in Christ is what gets you to the Lord's table. And it's circumcision of the heart that is important. Not any outward, um, legalistic form you might sign. You know, what do I have to do to take Lord's Supper here? Well, check these boxes, sign here, and, and you could... No, that's, that's not what is required. Only baptized true believers are invited to to the Lord's table. Number 3, the sign of the unleavened bread. The sign of the unleavened bread. Exodus 13:3. Moses said to the people, "Remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery, for by a powerful hand the Lord brought you out from this place, and nothing leavened shall be eaten." What is leaven? It's the yeast. In their bread that makes the bread rise. Leaven became synonymous for sin and false teaching. You'll see in the New Testament. Jesus said, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees after he fed the 5,000. And the apostles thought he was still talking about bread. You know, they're thinking, Okay, do the Pharisees make bread and sell bread and we're not to eat that? No. Leaven is false teaching, the old way of life, this legalistic, pharisaic Judaism, that you can earn your way to God through your own good works. And he says a little leaven ruins the whole lump. You allow a little false teaching into your doctrine, and it, it will spread. Sometimes we'll hear people outside our community say, Country Oaks puts too much emphasis on doctrine. I don't think you put enough emphasis on doctrine, not at the expense of living out your doctrine, and if we're guilty of that, we need to repent. And I would say everybody at some time in their life, or sometime this week, will be guilty, sometime this day, of not living out their doctrine. But the answer isn't to get rid of sound doctrine. Without sound doctrine, how will you know how to live? what will the corrective be? So you need the sound doctrine. But Jesus says there's a new leaven, a a new doctrine. He's also saying that the old leaven is your old way of life, your old sinful way of life, and to replace it. And so this commandment was to leave your house and not uh, eat leavened bread, only unleavened. It, It was to teach a lesson. We're putting the old behind us. We're going to something new. Also, we don't have time to wait for the bread to rise. It was hurry. You must leave now. Today is the day of salvation. Don't delay any longer. There was St. Augustine who writes, Lord, sanctify me, just not today. And you understand this sentiment. You understand this sentiment. Especially in your youth. You say, I want to be holy, I want to be righteous, I want to be mature in Christ, but not before I have my fun. Because you still have a wrong view of sin. You still think it delivers something good that immediate gratification of the flesh. I'm going to miss out on what the, all the other people get to enjoy. And so that sign of the, the unleavened bread is a sign that says you don't need the leaven. Leave it behind. In fact, it would become part of the Mosaic Law that during uh, the festival, they'd have to clean their houses thoroughly, of all leaven clean it out of their mixing bowls and kneading bowls and because it became synonymous with sin in their old way of life of course what does legalism do i have the cleanest house with no leaven on the block look how holy and righteous i am the the cleaning becomes the focus 1 Corinthians 5.8, Paul says, Therefore let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I just want to go back to that point. I know we've got people sitting in here today. Who want to follow Christ and a professed faith in Christ, and yet you want to bring your leaven with you? You want to bring the leaven with you. You want to bring the culture with you. You want to bring the culture's values and morals with you. You want to bring some aspects of your old life with you. Part of you knows it's wrong, and it won't deliver what it promises. And yet part of you says, it's the only place I know to go to for some instant happiness and gratification. Nothing leavened shall be eaten. Let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Sign number four, the sign of the firstborn. Exodus thirteen eleven. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Why this emphasis on the firstborn? Remember, Nathan taught us that the firstborn was more than just that first son that was born into the family, he represented the family's future. The hope of the family. And so God says to consecrate the firstborn to him. Set, set it aside for him. Why? Because that was the price of redeeming Israel out of slavery. But not their firstborn. Who paid the price? Somebody else. The Egyptians paid the price. And what a terrible morning that was. And you know that the Israelites weren't completely separated from Egyptians. They had Egyptian friends, they knew Egyptian families. And when tragedy strikes another family, especially their children, isn't that the first thought? you hug your children a little more tightly because you immediately think, oh, what would that be like? How devastating. And for some maybe who were persecuted worse than others and some whose baby boys were thrown in denial, maybe there was a moment of revenge or vengeance. But I would hope it wouldn't linger. It's a terrible thing. Terrible price because sin is terrible, and we serve a holy God. And that price of the firstborn in Egypt dying was a terrible, horrible, graphic reminder of what the wages of sin really are. And yet, it was even more than that. It pointed us to God's firstborn, Jesus Christ, who would pay the price of redemption to redeem us out of the slave market of sin. Not that Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, was born at some time. Yes, he was born a man when he took on human flesh, but he's always existed. He is eternal. He's God. Firstborn's a title. It's less a descriptor of being born and more a title of prominence, eminence, first place. In fact, let's read Colossians 1.15 together. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. Well, what is God like? God sent us His Son to show us what God is like. The firstborn of all creation. Occasionally, Jehovah Witnesses will come to my door. They come to your door too. They point to this verse to say that Jesus isn't eternal. If they would just read the next verse, of course, I don't know what their translation says, but for by him all things were created. Well, if Jesus is created and he's part of the all things, how does he create himself if there was a time he didn't exist? It doesn't make any sense for Jesus not to be eternal. He's eternal. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Now you understand this firstborn is is this title, this position, because Jesus raised other people from the dead. Right? He raised Lazarus from the dead. Wouldn't he be the firstborn from the dead? Well, Lazarus had to die again later. What this is saying, he's the firstborn of those of us who will be resurrected and have eternal life. I'm thinking as I read that, I'm sure, so glad that our church mission statement isn't something we concocted. The Bible's been saying it's all about Jesus. Well, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, it's been all about Jesus. Romans 8.29, Paul writes, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. He's the firstborn. He is the image and the picture we are all trying to attain towards. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Adam was the firstborn of the human race. And being our firstborn, he becomes our representative, our our federal head. And he failed and plunged the whole human race into sin. Jesus becomes the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn from the dead. He's our new federal head, believers in Christ, He's our representative. He's our, our firstborn. The fifth sign is the sign of the Red Sea crossing. Sign of the Red Sea crossing. So the Israelites leave Egypt. Pharaoh says, Leave, get out of here. They plunder the Egyptians as God promised would happen. They take with them gold and silver. And other valuable items for the future purpose of building and adorning the tabernacle. Yet, what do the people end up using the gold for? To build the golden calf, right? But as they're leaving, God says he'll harden Pharaoh's heart again. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. Pharaoh kind of came to his senses and said, Who's going to do all the work around here? And so they send the army after Israel. 600 plus chariots, the most powerful army in the known world at the time. Imagine that coming crashing down behind Israel. You two to three million Israelites on foot with no weapons. A sea in front of you. No boats, no way across the water. High canyon walls on your flanks. You're trapped. And beloved, if you don't know Jesus Christ, that's you today. No escape from judgment. The army of God's wrath on your sin crashing down on you. He's designed it that way. There's no escape to the left. Well, my good works will get me out of here. No escape to the right. Well, maybe God doesn't really exist. No escape ahead of you. Well, maybe I can make the Bible say something it doesn't. Good luck with that. That's equivalent to just trying to part the waters yourself. They're just going to flood right back in. And the weight and horror of your sin crashing in behind you. And the people cry out to the Lord. But then they say to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Folks, that's sarcasm. (laughs) Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? One minute they're in jubilation that they're finally leaving slavery, and they've plundered the Egyptians and taken their gold and silver with them, and the next minute they're saying, Why did you bring us out here? We would have been better off back in slavery. Sure, it was a hard, miserable life, but at least we knew possibly there would be a tomorrow. Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness? You know, newsflash, either way you're dying. But Moses said to the people, do not fear. And I love this, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. If you're not in Christ, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, stand by. And watch, the Lord delivers you. See the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. And the sins you've committed in your past, God will forgive them in Christ, and you will never see them again. They're gone as far as the east is from the west. We serve a God who's so loving that, though He's not ignorant of our sins, will treat us as if those sins were never committed. Because we get the righteousness of Christ in our faith who knew no sin. That is what God sees when He sees you, if you are in Christ Jesus. And what a glorious truth that is, if you are in Christ Jesus. That in the midst of my current failures, God sees the finished product before I am the finished product and loves me and treats me that way. That gives me the confidence and motivation to put Egypt behind me and the promised land ahead of me. Because in my weaker moments and in your weaker moments, beloved, you too say wouldn't we have been better back in Egypt? When Christianity seems too hard and fighting against the flesh is too difficult and it seems unbelievers now are prospering and enjoying life and persecution is going to come against the church, there will be days when, like the Israelites, you too will say, wouldn't it have been better? If you can't beat them, join them. No, beloved, it's a lie. We were in slavery to sin, trapped and destined for destruction. As they passed through the Red Sea, this becomes a picture of our baptism in Christ. Very powerful, literal, historical picture. There was a Red Sea, there is a Red Sea, it actually parted, and the entire nation of Israel passed through it on dry ground. God says, the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. I love that. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And Paul picks up on this imagery in many places in the New Testament, but specifically here in Romans 6. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, how are we who were once slaves in Egypt and now been set free go back to slavery? It is for freedom God set Israel free, it is for freedom. God set us free in Christ. Freedom from our old way of life, in slavery to our sin, enslavement to our sin. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? The Israelites were as good as dead on this side of the Red Sea. And then they passed through. And if they tried to cross the Red Sea on their own, they would have been as good as drowned. And they passed through and came out the other side alive. And then the walls of the Red Sea crashed in on the Egyptian army. And I love that God closed up the Red Sea. No going back. Beloved, no going back to your old way of life. Why would you want to go back? I say that rhetorically. I understand what the temptation is. I'm tempted to go back to my old way of life, but why would I? I remember the glorious day of my salvation and the, the freedom from the guilt and shame of sin and the, just the, the new heart it gave me and the new behaviors that immediately came out of it. And so God tells Israel, and you'll, you'll find that in the pages of the Old Testament, the Red Sea crossing is, of all of God's miracles, the most often cited. Because it would become a picture of our salvation in Christ. Look what God did for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. We are good as dead, we were baptized into Christ's death, and when we came out on the other side of the Red Sea raised to walk a new life. What do we say when we baptize here? Buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk a new life. Number six, the sign of the pillar of cloud and fire. There's God sent a pillar of cloud, and He was in the cloud and in the fire, leading Israel by day by the pillar of cloud and by night by the pillar of fire. But even more than that, As they waited for the Red Sea to part, God used the pillar to create separation between Egypt and Israel. Exodus 13.22, The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. The angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So normally the pillar is in front of them leading the way, but now you have the Red Sea here. The pillar moved behind them and pushed the Egyptian army back to create space and time for the miracle to occur and for the people to cross on foot. And the pillar of cloud moved before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was a cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. There, this this picture of Christ creating separation for us between our new life and our old This is what will keep you from going back. From falling into old habits, old sinful habits. The power of God that part of the Red Sea, the power of God that raised Christ from the dead, is the same power working in us to say no to sin. Your faith in Christ will keep the temptations of the world at bay. And it says, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. And it's Jesus who said, before he returned to heaven in the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and in the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He is with us at all times. He is with you when you're all alone, struggling with temptation. He is there. He is providing the light for you to follow and creating that separation if you will trust and follow Him. He is there as we go forward and evangelize. Don't be afraid. He is there with us. Don't be afraid as you disciple people and teach them to obey all that He has commanded. Yes, it's hard. People don't want to obey all that He has commanded, but it is what the Great Commission is all about. So when you disciple and counsel others, the Lord is there in the midst. He will provide the light to help you lead people on the paths of righteousness. John eight twelve. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Sign number seven, the sign of the bitter waters. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Kind of ironic, they just passed through this sea of water. And now they have no water to drink. When they came to Merah, they could not drink the waters of Merah, for they were bitter. It was impotable, stagnant water. Therefore it was named Merah, which means bitter. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, And he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. And there he made for them a statute, not a statue, a statute, a law, a regulation. And he tested them. And he said, if you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. One of these great names for God, Jehovah Rapha. God is healer. And we understand this is a special promise he made to the Israelites while they're in the wilderness. This, this, obey my commands and the diseases of the Egyptians will not be placed on you. But in general, in general, God is healer. We pray to Him, He heals our diseases. And the ones He doesn't heal that are temporal diseases, He heals in heaven, where all disease is banished. But more importantly, the disease of our sin is what He's healed. And I love this imagery, throw a a tree into the waters, and it was Jesus hanging on a tree that made the bitter waters of our sin sweet. Amen? You see, these things aren't accidents, the way God arranged all of these happenings. I mean, for the people of Israel, they realized that god it was God's power that changed the water from bitter to sweet that they would have to depend on God for everything, even water. By three days, they would have been dehydrated and parched and wouldn't have survived much longer. And they come upon this water, and they realize it's undrinkable. It's the power of God that changes it in the same way. Only God can heal us from the bitterness of our sin, Jesus said that if you put your faith in Him, living waters will flow from inside you. Right? And the woman at the well says, well, give me this water. And He said, well, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask Him for those waters. This is a, a picture of God taking his, our infirmities on Himself so that we may live. Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. This word infirmities in the Hebrew refers to diseases and illnesses. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. When Jesus hung on the cross, the people didn't recognize that it was to take the people's infirmities on himself. They said, Oh, look, God must be punishing him for being a blasphemer. We didn't understand what was going on. We thought he was being punished because he deserved punishment. We didn't understand he was taking our infirmities on himself. Matthew 8:17 This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This is after he touches a leper. And heals him, right? Nobody could touch a leper in those days for fear of getting the leprosy yourself, and the leper was unclean and the Mosaic law put an emphasis on being clean before God. First Peter two twenty four, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Ephesians four thirty one Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Beloved, is your heart bitter this morning? Bitterness of unforgiveness, bitterness that God is holding back, you don't like the way your life has turned out. You believe you deserve better, you don't like the way people are treating you, you don't like your position in life, you don't like your job. Why did you bring me out here and save me, God, so I could just live this miserable life? Is that where your heart's at this morning? Repent and look at your Savior hanging on a tree and the waters will become sweet. sign number 8 the sign of the bread of heaven manna Exodus 16:2 and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness are you seeing a theme and the people of Israel said to them oh would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Yeah, we were in slavery, but at least we had a little meat to eat and bread. Oh, sure, they threw our sons into the Nile. Oh, sure, we had to toil day and night making bricks for Pharaoh to make a shrine to him as a false god, but at least we had food to eat. oh sure, before I was a Christian, at least I had more friends and the world accepted me and thought I was cool. And Little by little, now you're going to find that the world will not accept you in your ways, in your narrow-mindedness. And it's going to start costing promotions, jobs, friends, who knows what. Maybe it'll cost your freedom. Maybe imprisonment will come. Maybe martyrdom. And the temptations to say, well, at least we had, at least we had, at least we had. Why would God save me just to die here? Look, you're not going to die eternally. That's the point. We're all going to die here. But what happens after we die is what's important. All the spiritual blessings stored up for us in the heavenly places are secured to us. And we have the down payment of the Holy Spirit to remind us that so much is waiting for us. Oh, there's so much good here, beloved. The the antidote to your complaining and grumbling isn't just the good things around you now, because if those good things are taken away from you, you'll go right back to your complaining and grumbling. Look to the cross Look to Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Jesus said in John 6, after he fed the 5,000, they came back the next day, and I'm going to paraphrase for time's sake. They came back looking for another meal, another free meal. And Jesus said, you didn't come because you saw the sign. You came to eat your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for food that eventually perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And they said, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God. Believe in Him whom He has sent. Believe in Christ. And he said, well, the people said, well, gee, if we're going to believe in you, what sign will you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? You know, and the answer is, look, I just fed you with couple loaves and fish. And they knew he was thinking that, and they said, well, our father um, Moses fed our our forefathers in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, that's a real sign. You only did it for a day, and there's only 5,000 of us. And Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. That 40 years of manna waiting for them every morning was a picture of Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven, who would come down and feed us for all eternity. Sign number nine is a sign of the water from the rock. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink, therefore the people quarreled "...with Moses and said, Give us water to drink." And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. The staff represented God's authority to judge. Okay? And he said, take some of the elders with you. The elders were representatives of the people. And God would hold a court right there at Horeb. And he found the people guilty of idolatry We would have been better off back in Egypt with Egypt's gods. At least we had water and we had food back there. And God had the right and the authority to judge the people there and wipe out Israel and just let them die of thirst. And instead, He took the rod of judgment and hit the rock. And the rock absorbed the punishment the people deserved. And instead of wrath... In condemnation, life-giving water pours out. And you say, well, where where is Christ in this picture? He's the rock and the water. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the... The cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. He took the punishment they deserved and gave them life-giving water. Beloved, this is what happened when you put your faith in Christ. He took the blow of judgment. We get Living water. And it is why Moses was punished by God when he hit the rock on his own. You get it? It's not Moses' prerogative to decide when God will judge and give mercy. And he hit the rock a second time without God's permission. There's a, a lesson for us there, too, as you evangelize people. You tell them the gospel and you warn them of God's judgment and His wrath and tell them the only way of escape, but you don't hit the rock of Christ on your own accord and say, yeah, you're saved. Only through repentance and faith will the person you're evangelizing be saved. Don't preach easy-beliefism Yes, God's already paid for your sins, but it won't be actuated to your account until you put your faith in Christ. The last, the last sign is the victory over the Amalekites. The Amalekites, Amalek, descended from Esau. Esau became synonymous in Israel's history for the flesh. Because he was the firstborn and he sold his birthright for instant gratification, a bowl of stew. And so the Amalekites became synonymous with sin in the flesh. And these were terrible people who attacked Israel in the desert from the rear. Who's in the rear of the line? Elderly, women, children... Disabled. Terrible, cowardly people. And they, they fought the Amalekites in the desert, and Moses goes up to the mountain and holds up his hands, and while the rod of God is up in the air, Israel's winning, but as his hands droop, the Amalekites begin to win, and Aaron and Hur go up on the mountain and hold Moses' hands up. And certainly... Moses and the rod of God is teaching the people that the victory only comes through God. God will deliver the victory. And certainly you understand that is the case when it comes to our sin. Only God can deliver the victory. In fact, when they defeat the Amalekites, Moses calls the place... The Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner, Jehovah Nisi. The Lord is My Banner, the banner that goes ahead of the victorious army. A hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Agag was from the Amalekite people, and remember Saul wouldn't kill Agag, King Agag, and Samuel came and hacked him to pieces, and who's the villain in the book of Esther? Mordecai, the last of the Amalekites, and he almost wipes out all of Israel, and that is the last Amalekite, and God does finally wipe out all the Amalekites of the earth, and Amalek becomes synonymous for sin. You let it hang around and it'll come back to haunt you. Amen? And so you hack it to pieces and you eliminate it out of your life and God will give you the victory. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your victor, put your faith in Jesus Christ this morning. Do not leave. Today is the day of your salvation. Do not delay. Don't take the leaven with you out the doors. This morning, leave it here at the foot of the cross. And if you do know Christ as Savior, look at all of these pictures that point us to Him, strengthening our faith in Christ and in the Scriptures that point to Him. That He has delivered us from the bondage of slavery to sin, just like the Israelites or the Egyptians, and you don't need to go back to slavery He's brought you he through the Red Sea. He's brought the waters back together. There's no turning back. Don't let the devil and the world tell you you're missing out back in Egypt. You're not. March forward to the promised land in faith. And don't complain and grumble along the way. But give God the glory and the thanks and the praise. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. I will be out of town this week on vacation with my family. Nathan and Craig and the elders will be happy to take care of all of your spiritual needs this week. Amen. God bless you.